listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma, and I'm your host, Trish Close. Dave Page of David Page Wines on the podcast today. He talks about growing up in the Midwest, not growing up around wine, like at all. He said it wasn't until a job at a wine shop where he really discovered the world of wine and all it had to offer. Off to UC Davis, he went to learn more. He worked at several wineries in California and then decided to move north to Oregon. He settled in at the famed Adelsheim Vineyards, where he worked for nearly two decades as winemaker. He talks about how much he loved that job and all of the things he learned there. In 2018, he decided he wanted to create his own label, a serendipitous meeting with two other individuals, and David Page Wines was born. We dive into his philosophy, his style of winemaking, and really what he wants you, the consumer, to get out of his wines. He says a huge part of that is never stop growing, learning, pushing, and really never getting complacent. Here's David Page. Are you at the new winery? I am. Okay. October 2022, that bad boy opened. Uh, that's correct. Um, just in time for the fruit. Just, um, just in time. At least for, for those, for if you have done construction yourself, you're familiar with the concept of blue tape. And uh, that's where you, you put blue tape on anything that isn't done yet and needs the construction crew to fix it up. There was still plenty of blue tape on the walls when we started crushing. I think wine lovers like that, though, right? It's all about being organic and being real, and it's uh, <laughs> a process. And as long as we go through it together and there's wine, what are you going to complain about? Well, you know, it doesn't take – when it comes to infrastructure, it only takes so much to make wine. As long as you have the right equipment. The rest is just a big open building, mm -hmm. hopefully with good HVAC and good insulation and a drain in the floor. Okay. Well, Dave Page of David Page Wines in the Willamette Valley, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having us. You've had quite the career, and I don't want to make that sound like you're done or anything, but you've had quite the career. We're going to talk a lot about that. But first, I want to find out where are you from originally? Uh, originally, I'm from Ohio. Mm -hmm. Midwest. Midwestern hot, boy. Midwest. The hotbed of, of wine and wine thinking in this country. Really? I didn't know. <laughs> I'm picking up on your sarcasm, sir. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to show you, show you a little bit of the winery in the background. Perfect. Since it's there. Nice. Um, well, yeah, I never drank wine. Uh, my family never had wine on the table. There was none of that. We... Um, uh, probably had wine once a year on Thanksgiving and it was probably something from Ohio that was terrible. And, uh, uh, but I ended up getting a job in a wine shop mm -hmm. when I was living in Columbus. And that's what really got me hooked. Um, I had always been trying to think, uh, you know, I'd always been interested in artistic fields and scientific fields. And it was really the first thing I found where the connection between the two was so inescapable that you couldn't read about wine for more than a couple of sentences without seeing it. Right. In fact, you were going into something, I mean, or I should say you were interested in something that had nothing to do with wine. Oh, many things. I had majored in uh, uh, computers, uh, genetics, uh, forestry. Yeah, I'd, I had some 
wildly dissimilar majors uh, over time. And then I ended up picking the one thing that you couldn't get at Ohio State. Sounds about right. Um, why wine shop? What I mean, did you was it that a job out of necessity? Did it sound cool? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it was a job out of necessity, and I was, um, I, I knew I was not really going anywhere with what I was studying at Ohio State, and and yeah, I needed a job, and and. They hired me because they had just lost their beer expert. And, you know, I've attended Ohio State for three years. That can be anybody's beer expert. Totally. uh, (laughs) So I had no idea that I was going to end up really liking wine and learning about that. And, and, uh, but honestly, as long ago as I was, that experience is still very influential on me. Yeah. I mean, obviously. And I guess my question for you what was it about that wine shop? Was it just the fact that there was this like building of, of things that you had no idea about? And so it was that thirst for knowledge or, I mean, what was it about the wine shop? Um, part of it was that I was lucky enough to have some coworkers that weren't caught up in what, you know, the, those are back in the days when there was really the 10% or whatever it was of the country that drank wine. Right. And the 90% that never, ever did. And you could get caught up in uh, a snobby kind of wine culture if you hung out with the wrong people that could be a bit of a turnoff. And I was lucky that I worked with a bunch of people who just like wine and were super down to earth about it. But also just the, the tasting that really changed my head was a tasting I was invited to that was a bunch of Alsatian whites. And this is this was in the 80s and everything in the wine world in the 80s was big Cabernet and super rich buttery Chardonnay. And um, you know that's what everybody said they liked and said they wanted. And to go to this tasting where none of the wines fit that description at all, and yet they were delicious. It was the first time that I knew I was really liking something for reasons that had nothing to do with whether or not I was kind of being told to like it. You know, this had nothing to do with what was popular. This was, these wines are killer and I got hooked. That's refreshing, right? Mm -hmm. Someone in the wine world telling you, just asking really your opinion instead of telling you what you should think of it. Well, especially when you're tasting something that isn't necessarily the popular thing right now. Mm-hmm. You know, and and these were really amazing. Uh so it it impacts me to this day. I mean, anybody who tastes the wines that I make now can still see the influence. I like brightly flavored wines. Uh, I'm not I'm not going for I'm not trying to win the contest of who can make the densest, you know, uh, uh most uh, viscous wine. Mm-hmm. Um I read that you went to UC Davis, which for us over here on the West Coast, it's like the Mecca for learning about winemaking. Yes, uh, that's the, yeah, when I say I found the one thing that I couldn't major at in Ohio State, uh, that was the next thing was, well, where do you go to learn about this? And 
And at the time, you know, nowadays there are plenty of other options, but at the time, UC Davis was pretty much it. And um, so went out and got that degree and was working in the wine industry in California. Uh, worked in the foothills, uh, Napa Valley, Monterey, did a harvest in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, just saw a lot of different things. It wasn't until I kind of settled into Monterey that I got a little more used to cooler climate stuff and started focusing more on Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, yeah. and cl- cooler climate style of wine. Um Back up a little bit at UC Davis and then as you're working in wineries and even in Australia, do you find that you just fit? You fit in this industry? You were like, aha, here's my place. I'm going to say yes, but to the extent that I never had to have that thought. You know what I mean? It was um, it was a natural fit in a way that I never needed to even say I had an aha moment, you know. Um, and I did not grow up in agriculture. I think the one of the one of the biggest things that people encounter when they get into wine production is that some of them may find that it's challenging to end up on in this agricultural cycle of things, which is a very strange thing to be beholden to if you're used to other kinds of jobs. Yeah. And uh, uh, but that something I took to quite well and and uh and it really continues to run it runs your life you know it does and and it's it's the it's a it's not even an annual cycle almost you know the the learning curve goes from year to year not month to month not not week to week yeah it's interesting you brought that up i was going to ask you later in the interview but it seems like when you make wine, you have to be in that agricultural side. It depends on how deep you go, right? Like some winemakers can go pretty deep, some not so deep, but you have to be involved in it. You do. You have to appreciate that. And it's not just the basic idea that you have to be in touch with the vineyards you work with so that you can learn how to better create the flavors in the vineyard that you are going to want to work with in the winery. Um, I mean, that's, that's a big part of it, but a lot of it is just understanding that that's what's in charge, you know, just understanding that those natural rhythms are driving the show and don't get frustrated by that, but just become a part of that. And, um, and I think that that's something that, allows you to start seeing even further into what's going to make, you know, what, what makes these grapes, what they are, what makes this vineyard, what it is. And you can kind of appreciate with a little more depth what's going on out in the vineyard. I read that you are really drawn to cooler climate, um, cooler climate wines. And so you said, you mentioned Monterey. That's really, was that like the first experience working in a cooler climate with grapes? Yeah, I would say the, in particular, I was working in bef- really before it even got the Appalachian status, San Lucia Highlands. You know, I was working in that part of Monterey. And at some point you can get close enough to the coast where it's too cool to even ripen fruit. And uh, what's interesting is Oregon has kind of the same phenomenon, but our Pacific Ocean is even colder. 
So we need the barrier of the coast ranges. Otherwise, we would, the Willamette Valley would never ripen anything. But the sort of miracle of the coast ranges is that they're not so tall that they block everything out. You know, if they were 6,000 feet, then we would be Walla Walla. Um, if they didn't exist, we would be making cheese from the cattle we're running. And, uh, um, but down in Monterey, it was a little more of a condensation of that whole phenomenon. Um, there weren't mountains between us and the coast, but if you were right by the coast, you you did artichokes. Five miles further inland, you did strawberries. Five miles further inland than that, you did uh, broccoli. And five more miles, and you started planting grapes. You know, and uh, it was just as the air moved off the ocean and finally warmed up. I find climate in general fascinating. In Southern Oregon, we have microclimates, so you can grow different things in different regions that grow really well that maybe you can't do anywhere else. And it's just fascinating to me that a particular site, and you know this very well being in the Willamette, but a particular site has everything to do with what you can grow and how well you can grow it. Well, and what's what's fascinating about coming to the Willamette Valley after that experience, you know, uh, by the same token, just as you can go five miles closer to the coast and, and struggle to ripen fruit if you're in the Salinas Valley, you can go 10 miles further inland and plant whole different varieties mm -hmm. and ripen them with no problem. Mm -hmm. And so when you, when you do that, what you find is that you don't have the same challenges as some of your neighbors, as some, some of the other people working in the industry. In the Willamette Valley, there's, quite a large area that's kind of in that sweet spot between the coast ranges and the Cascades. And so we get to really dabble in sort of the deep dive, the graduate level discussion of what's different about this site versus that site, because, because they have 90% of the same weather and, you know, the same climate. So we get to do a deeper dive into what is that? What's the last, 10% mm -hmm. or what's the distinction in the, in the soil? What's the distinction in, in elevation and aspect? And, and it kind of allows for this whole valley to have been kind of this graduate level seminar about how to do this for the last several decades. Yeah. And you're talking you know, about been, hardcore nerd stuff now. Yeah. Well, that's what's needed to really raise the bar. And that's, and Oregon's been great at that. You know, the, even just coming up to visit Oregon in the 90s, I could see that going on, the, the willingness to share everything with each other. And it's because we had 90% of the things in common, which meant we could really do the deep dive into that 10%. Um, whereas if I was down in Monterey and I was talking to someone who did Cabernet and Zinfandel just 15 miles from me, I had very little in common with that. Right. So I might like them. We might socialize together, but we weren't going to make each other's wines a lot better. Um, and Oregon has really had that as part of the DNA here since before I got here. But it's been a great thing to be a part of is that people would really learn from each other and they could because they shared so much. For sure. That's amazing. So you're working in California. Um, you said you worked in Australia. When did you decide 
I need to move to Oregon. Make the move up north. Well, I'd been coming up here and tasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a, had some friends up here. I uh, knew something about the industry, and so uh, it wasn't until some mutual friends introduced me to David Adelsheim in 2001, and that's what led to coming up and taking that job uh, in fall of 2001, just in time for harvest to start. <laughs> it always works out that way. Well, Adelsheim yeah. Vineyards, I mean, incredibly popular, well-known, Um you're getting a little sun right now in the Willamette Valley, aren't you? I was just about to say, this is, uh, right, I'm in danger of getting a sunburn if I'm not careful. <laughs> you feel free to move and make yourself as, as comfy as possible. Um, there we go. But you you come to Oregon, and I just, I find it really fascinating. You make the trek up here, and you start working at Adelsheim Vineyards. Oh. I mean, again, popular, famed famed winery in the Willamette region. They were what one of the first families to grow grapes and make wine in the Willamette. Yeah. And, um, and it, that was quite an honor. I mean, that was yeah. a big deal to me because I really respected the history up here and knowing that those guys created this out of nothing. Um, not just David, of course, but you know, Dave Lett and a lot of other people, including some that people don't really talk about anymore, like Charles Curry. Um, there were some real amazing pioneers that had the imagination to start this thing yeah. when it was probably still officially kind of a crackpot idea. But, uh, you know, I've said before, the difference between a crackpot and a pioneer is, that, is whether or not you're proven right. And uh, these guys were. Absolutely. So. Totally pioneers. You were there for two decades as winemaker. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. 17 vintages. Um, and amazing experience. Um, I still, I mean, I love the place. You know, if I, you stay in your place for 17 years and you don't love it, then what's wrong with you? But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I only honestly left because I just felt like maybe there should be a new, a, a different step in my career, I didn't really know what that was going to look like until we started kind of talking about what that, you know, my wife and I really started talking about what that might look like. Um, I read that you, you took over as winemaker, you took over for David Adelsheim at some point. Is that correct? No, David had figured out early on that he, he was he wanted to hire a, a winemaker. And so he had had another winemaker there for quite some time who at one point left, but then there was a, a year or two of, you know, David doing the job again with some help. And uh, so um, technically that might be accurate that I took over from David, but, but I wasn't the first winemaker he'd ever had. Okay. Um, yeah. So there for 17 vintages, I mean, there's obviously, like you said, you loved it. What was it about this place that just clicked for you? Really, everything about it. I mean, honestly, it's the respect for how culturally this whole place um, uh, wants to learn and wants to make great Pinot Noir and great great wines in general 
and how much the entire community had plugged into that effort and bought in, uh, which David was a huge part of, and the amount they had already accomplished in just a few decades, which for this industry is not a long time. You know, uh, this isn't one of those, it's not like, you know, computers where two decades, you, you might not recognize what you're calling a computer anymore. You know, this is a slow to move industry and the amount of learning they'd already done before I got here, the amount of learning we kept on doing. Um, I got to work with a lot of great vineyards that we could do that kind of deep dive with and really appreciate the difference between them. And it was a great opportunity to really learn about all these wines, uh, about all these vineyards, all these sites. And to, I think the thing I figured out the most finally over all that time was not that there's a technique that I'm in love with, but that all these sites are so different. They deserve different techniques. They will, different kinds of winemaking strategies will bring the best out of different sites. And so how to approach fruit as if you don't know yet what the best wine from this fruit will be and how to approach it with that kind of open mind and say, what, what should I be doing? What should I be doing to make this awesome? Mm -hmm. yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, so, and that took a long time. You know, I don't, I don't know that I could have done that had I just worked at a series of places for, you know, three, four years each. Right. Well, you have to be, it seems like you would have to be in the same, I guess, area location to really see from year to year, right? What's happening with the fruit. I mean, you can't just, I don't know. I don't know much about uh, making wine, but it would seem like you would need some of that consistency year, year after year to be in the vineyard to really figure out what's happening out there. Well, especially since it's an annual thing, you know, yeah. since you don't get to, you don't get to try it again next month. Right. Um, you don't get to learn on that scale. And if, if the next year's harvest is significantly cooler and rainier than last year's, then whatever lesson you thought you learned last year is irrelevant this year anyway. Mm -hmm. So if every vintage looks exactly the same, then maybe you'd learn faster, but they don't. So it really does take that much time. You know, if you're, if you're in the Valley now and you started making wine 10 years ago, I don't care how much you've learned. You've never seen a vintage like 2010 or 2011. So it doesn't matter how fast you learn, you hadn't seen those situations yet. And that's another part of the agricultural thing about, For sure. you know, that, um, was there anything special about 2010 or 2011? Well, they were just so phenomenally cool and late mm -hmm. and, you know, to some extent rainy, but honestly it was the lateness of more than anything. If your fruit's not getting ripe till late October, you're naturally exposed to very different conditions yeah. than, than you're normally exposed to. Ooh. And, uh, you know, those wines are awesome. Uh, they're those, they made excellent wines, but what a different, completely different set of challenges than you had if you hadn't seen that before. Right. Is that the stuff that keeps you up at night? Um, I don't know if it keeps me up at night, but it keeps me engaged. Mm -hmm. You know, it certainly 
And it certainly is the stuff that keeps giving you respect for what goes on around here uh, in terms of the weather and the, the, the influence Mother Nature gets to have um, and the interaction with that and the vines. And having that perspective keeps you agile. It keeps you ready for anything. So this past year, when we didn't start picking till early October, but we had lots of great weather in, in late September and the first part of October. And I was telling people a month before harvest this year, this could be another 2010 for all we know. We don't know yet. Right. right? And, and uh, there's nothing worse than assuming you already have some idea of what this year's harvest is going to be like. Because you're going to make stupid choices because you think you already know. So yeah. just having that kind of perspective and understanding that, you know, nature's still in charge and the vines are still in charge and, you know, just keep an open mind, pay attention. Well, you know what they say when you assume, right? <laughs> exactly. It makes the ass but, out of everybody. Um, and, and you somehow managed to still make the same wine making choices every single year because you keep thinking you're right yeah you know that's the thing you need to be ready to make different wine making choices you need to be ready to say everything i thought about this vintage vintage turns out to be wrong so i have to change right now right right in midstream yeah because i wasn't right i was gonna say it makes it a lot harder for you to get complacent right you can't yeah we're not supposed to be you know, we're not supposed to be. Anybody who already knows how they're going to make wine in 2023 um, is probably not going to do as good as they should do. You know, that they'd, they'd have to get lucky to to make great wine in 2023. Right. And you know, so I tell people I don't yet know what we're going to do. I haven't seen the fruit yet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's or. You know, you know some things once you've worked in the same vineyard for a while, right? You have, you might have part of the story already written, but you've just got to let the vintage in front of you fill in the last part. So what's going on with you then? You're at Adelsheim for nearly two decades, but what's going on with you that you decide my own label is where it's at? This is what I want to do. This is going to be my next adventure. It was almost the process of elimination, mm-hmm. <laughs> to be honest. Um, I just, I certainly didn't start with that thought, um, but it seemed to be the last idea left on the table. And um, I don't, that sounded worse than I meant it, but, <laughs> okay. you know, uh, but there was just so much to think about. And, the opportunity to, to give that a try was um, definitely tempting, but it was I wasn't one of these people who was compelled to do it. But I think it turned out to be the excuse me the right decision. Um, I'm grateful for the way it turned out, especially to now be able to do a deep dive into what is now my own vineyard. Uh, feels like an incredible opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I'm very honored and in some ways still amazed to be able to do that. 
Well, tell me the story a little bit because you're you're sort of on this adventure. You've decided you want to create your own label. You're looking for property. And, you know, you didn't know it at the time, but there were these two other dudes who were looking for property too. And it was very serendipitous how all this kind of happened. I mean, you met them and it, I mean, you, you tell me the story. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to tell the story. You tell me the story. <laughs> well, it was incredible dumb luck. Uh, you know, we just, ha- I happened to know someone who just happened to have run into one of the two of them. They were already friends. These two friends from Indiana. Um, I kept, I had been beating the bushes for a while. And uh, as I tell it, you you meet people who have the money to do something like this because I I certainly my career did not leave me with the kind of bankroll that means I get to go buy a vineyard and start a winery you know that you can burn a pretty big pile of money trying to start a winery <laughs> business and and so I was looking for people who want to be partners and I was meeting some people who are very enthusiastic but maybe had one-tenth at the most of the money required to get that done. And I would meet other people who had the money, but they tended to have other irons in the fire. They were interested, but but it, it was hard for them to really commit to, to jumping in with both feet. And in John and George, we sort of had two friends who offered both. And so between them, I could see that we could fund this startup and, and we had the enthusiasm to really work with me. on I'm a big believer in things that are meant to be, and they happen for a reason. Did you feel that way at all meeting these guys? Um, in hindsight, I'm feeling that way in hindsight. Uh, but at the time, no, I felt much more like the pinball in a pinball game. <laughs> <laughs> than, than the person who's actually playing pinball. <laughs> nice. And uh, but I I think that it's fun to look back on that. And uh, but yeah, there was there was some amazing moments where you're trying to put this whole thing together. Oh, I'm sure. And uh, but then, like I say, you end up with. You know, I started out 2018. Uh, as an employee of Adelsheim. And at the end of 2018, we had finally gelled as partners. We'd made our first vintage of wine. And right at the end of that year, we actually bought this vineyard that I'm at right now. Wow, that's fast. So I I think when I think back on it, it feels like it was this very long transition. But, you know, it was all that year. Uh, where did you settle? What vineyard did you settle on? Where was it? Is it? Um, I am in the northern part of the Eola Amity Hills uh, at the base of Walnut Hill Road, for those of who are really familiar with the area. Um, and it's not quite the most famous part necessarily of the Eola Amity Hills, but but it's, it's great. Um, we have this wonderful sort of rocky volcanic outcropping from the main spine of the Eola Hills that our vineyard's on. And um, we're 
east facing pretty much situated much the same as as a lot of the somewhat more famous people to to the south of us but you know we're um you know it's it's just a beautiful location and we had a chance to make a little bit of wine from it in 2018 with purchased fruit before we even bought it so we had wine in barrel when we bought the vineyard and uh you know we that was more convincing than anything i could say about walking the vineyard uh the wine the wine yeah we still you know we we, our 2018 chardonnay was actually almost all just from what's now our estate vineyard and our 2000 and we made a 2018 rpg vineyard pinot noir from this vineyard and now those were picked and in barrel before we actually owned the vineyard and so we you know we had experience with this very site i'd had experience with the eola hills before right you know from my time at adelsheim we'd always we'd made a, a zenith vineyard pinot noir we'd made a temperance hill vineyard pinot noir and i'd worked some with plenty of other vineyards in this area including some that are just a few miles as the crow flies from where i'm sitting now so this area was not new to me this particular vineyard was. Do you remember the first or your reaction, I guess, when you tasted those wines? Oh, I, I definitely love the Chardonnay. Pinot Noir often takes a little bit longer to come around and reveal itself. But, I, you know, but one thing I definitely was getting out of it that I think is real classic characteristic of the Eola Amity Hills is that dark earth quality that that comes out in its youth. One of the things I still think of as kind of a, a mystery about the Eola Hills is that the younger wines seem to have more dark earth than the older wines. They sort of, almost, I, I see the fruit come out almost after it ages a while. And, um, and I find that fascinating in a way that just makes me want to pursue it for, you know, yeah. it's the kind of thing where I just feel like I got to learn more about that. I got to see what's up with that. And more to the point, I got to learn how to make the best wine possible, given that that is going to happen. In other words, that's what's going to happen is influencing me as a winemaker, not me as a winemaker trying to influence what's going to happen, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I think it seems like Pinot Noir does fascinate you. Well... Pinot Noir is probably, you know, people have different ways of saying this, and I don't know which is more to the point. But the bottom line for me, whether you think of Pinot Noir as transparently revealing its source, the way some people might say it or whatever, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly um, this amazing puzzle that is both already delicious, it's already completely enjoyable. While at the same time, the puzzle's never quite complete. And so you get to still, you know, you're enjoying it while you're still finishing the puzzle. And I I absolutely intend to, I expect to retire without having completed the puzzle. You know, um, don't, don't ever let yourself think you completely know how to do this job. And, and I think that's true for Pinot Noir more than any other variety I've worked with. I also, though, very much love the cool climate whites that come out of this area. I think the Chardonnay from this vineyard I was already in love with when we bought it. 
what I didn't even know about and came along for the ride is there was a little over an acre and a half of Pinot Blanc here. That turns out to be some of the most amazing fruit I've ever worked with. And wow. so I feel like, I feel like somehow that was thrown in for free because I didn't even think much about it when, when we bought the vineyard. You know, and I feel very lucky to, to be working with stuff like that. And that takes me back to that original, my, my original love of Alsace, you know, and, and loving these crisp, lively whites as well. So it's, it isn't always all about Pinot Noir, but, right. but yeah, Pinot, Pinot certainly drives the show here. Yeah, and I think if on the outside, especially looking in, people who don't know anything about the Willamette Valley, that's the first thing that they say is, oh, the best Pinot Noir in in the world. Well, it's harder to become known as the most amazing Chardonnay somewhere, partly because every place in the world that grows grapes grows Chardonnay. Right. And uh, not all well, but they all do it. And... Uh, <laughs> And they all make different styles. And to some extent, all those different styles of Chardonnay are at least reasonably well accepted. So I don't think Oregon could get as far with Chardonnay uh, until we finally kind of impress people with that there's a style of Chardonnay that comes out of here and that it doesn't have anything to do with California Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to sell an Oregon Chardonnay 25 years ago or 30 years ago, it, you're not just competing with whether or not your vineyard's great and you know what you're doing. You're competing with the fact that there is a definition of New World Chardonnay, and it was a monolithic definition. So that took a long time to get past that. But Pinot, on the other hand, isn't grown everywhere. And the reason it's grown, not grown everywhere is that in a lot of settings, Pinot Noir wouldn't be impressive at all. Yeah. It would be a complete waste of someone's time. So you're developing uh, a region around Pinot Noir, and there's only a couple of other regions in the world that anybody's going to really compare you to. And if you make a mark, it will get noticed. There's not that much. The world is not flooded in, in excellent Pinot Noir. You know, yeah. so I think that's the single biggest reason why it got noticed so much is people were saying, you know, wow, there's great Pinot Noir out of Oregon. That is a much bigger piece of news than whether or not there's great Chardonnay or Pinot Blanc out of Oregon. Um, speaking of style, do you think you have a style when it comes to winemaking? I have a goal when it comes to winemaking, um, and I guess you can call that a style. Um, I like bright fruit. I like um, the shorthand for that 15 years ago was to talk about acidity. Right. But I think it goes beyond that. I think it's really about being crisp and lively and still seeming like fresh fruit. And that goes beyond saying I like wines that have bright acidity. Um, the freshness of flavor is something you really have to capture when you're picking and uh, those wines just always make me go back for more. You know, when I'm, when I'm, whether it's a my own home or in a restaurant or whatever, when you finish a glass of wine and you're still thinking about some nuance of it, some aspect of it that you're really fascinated by, more often than not, those are 
fresh flavored wines to me, not jammy or heavier. And so, you know, these aren't wines that are about how can we make bigger wine? We know how to make bigger wine. Making bigger wine is actually ridiculously easy. It's the, it's the simplest thing you can do in, in winemaking. Um, the question is how to make wine that's more fascinating. And that's not bigger, right? Um, yeah. So I, I think that's, that's kind of a, a thinking that drives me. Now, as far but style is still allowed to be influenced by the vineyard. So I try not to get, I try not to let myself say, I have a style because then I might reject something that's naturally coming out of a site. Mm -hmm. So if you taste the wines we make here from the Eola Hills, for example, you will taste more of that rich, dark earth. Um, I still work with a few vineyards from my old stomping grounds in the Shayla mountains and they don't, they have a different set of flavors. They have a different tannic structure. And so they should taste different. And, you know, um, if I let myself buy into too heavily that I have a style, then those wines are going to start tasting alike, whether they're from the Shahila Mountains or the Yola Hills. And that would be wrong. That's not yeah. respectful of how amazingly different the, those vineyards were. Exactly. Um, yeah, there is something about, and I, well, when it comes to wine, for the most part, I always want just a little bit more. Um, but there is something fun about those mm -hmm. wines that you can't, quite put your finger on something right and you're just like i need, I need exactly. a little bit more of that like what is that what's going on there exactly it's one thing to pour yourself that second glass and be thinking man that's good wine but it's another still and it's a it's a higher compliment in my opinion be pouring yourself that second glass and be saying to yourself you know i haven't, haven't quite put my finger on it yet you know yeah um i love that uh, i often say that you know, to use the analogy about going out to a restaurant. If I go to a restaurant and I love the food, but I can kind of guess where the flavors came from. I still love the food. I love the restaurant, but we, we might be driving home talking about how we'd love to try to cook that someday. But if you go out to a restaurant and you have no idea how they did that, but man, that was good. Then you're going to be driving home talking about when you're going to go back to that yeah. restaurant. And that's the, you know, I want the wine equivalent of that. I want, oh man, that just, that's just so fascinating and so delightful. And what's it, the interesting thing, though, is some of the things I'm talking about are the opposite of obvious. You know, they you almost have to let the wine sink in to see it. This isn't rapid fire, blind tasting kind of stuff. You know, uh, I think people should think about that the next time they have a chance to go to a wine tasting. If you bounce around from table to table and spend 10 seconds with every wine, you might, at the end of it, you might say, I got to try all the wines there. Yeah, but you didn't really learn anything about most of those wines. You know, you didn't, you didn't get, if, if you learned everything about a wine in that amount of time, that wasn't a very interesting one, you know. Uh, Good point. So these are, these are more, more elusive than that. And, and that's what I like about these. I was going to say, you like the elusiveness of it. For sure. I can tell. Um, I'm a cook, so I th this is how my brain works. But anytime someone goes in for seconds, if I've cooked something and they go in for seconds, that is the biggest compliment to me. So it's um, kind of along the same yeah. lines. Yeah, exactly. You know, especially 
Right, especially when you find yourself eating more than you thought and you weren't even that hungry, right? <laughs> when it's like, you know, it's like, man, this tastes good. I got to try another bite. Yeah. You know, uh, right. I find the same thing that happens with food and wine pairing, mm-hmm. right? If the food and wine pairing is really, is really working, then I'll have both more food and more wine. Please. And because I just love going back and forth. You know, yes. It's just fun. Yes. Hungry for more. Always. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about the Willamette Valley, you think? I think the main thing is we just somehow have this, a very large area that's in that sweet spot climatically. And, um, and, uh, you could talk about the soils here, but to be honest, as long as you're up off the valley floor, which is simply just too rich and too, you know, soils are just simply too rich and deep to probably produce world beating wine. But, um, as long as you're up off the valley floor, you're in that sweet spot climatically where you could really probably do something pretty great with almost any soil type. And it might be different than someone from with another soil type, but that's where, you know, you get to refine that. You get to learn what's the definition of amazing from this site, both as a grape grower and then as a winemaker. And like I said, it's that, that element where we all get to have enough in common that we can engage in the comparisons and the conversation. And yet we still get to explore the uniqueness and, you know, that to me, that's what stays fascinating. That's, that's what stays amazing. And there aren't that many places that can reliably do that, that, you know, in terms and we certainly are seeing that more and more when you look at the effects we've already seen from climate change. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're a thousand miles inland from the coast, your climate is getting more chaotic. You're you're more whips on, you know, with with different weather and different years. And part of what holds us together, even with some of the climate change we've had, is that the Pacific Ocean is still a very giant blob of water that's less than 100 miles away as a crow flies and it may have warmed up a degree or two but it's still pretty cool and cool moist air still comes off of it and those coast rangers are still here so they're still doing what they do so we're kind of in uh, buffered from some of the crazier things that have happened with climate yeah and uh, you know and and it's just it's just a luxury to still be able to focus because of that. That's why we get to focus on our individual sites and our individual winemaking tools. Well, it's a fun, it's a fun location to drive through for sure. I mean, there's just, I feel like there's something very special about the Willamette Valley. It's just kind of magical, a little mysterious. Um, It's just a fun, fun location to drive through for sure. Um, Do you ever feel like you're in a box a little bit? I know that there's other varieties in the Willamette, but do you ever feel like, you're just confined to Pinot and Chardonnay? Uh, and I, I will throw in and Pinot Blanc. And but, Pinot Blanc. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, not really. I mean, we have some more vineyard we're going to plant, and maybe we'll do a little bit of Gamay or something. Um, so I'm not ruling out that we won't add a little bit to the mix. Not to mention you could happily just grow 
Pinot Noir Chardonnay and Pinot Blanc and end up making sparkling wine, things like that. Yeah. That are natural components of cool climate winemaking. But I think that the process of learning more and more about sites and how to really make these wines as amazing as possible is such a lifelong devotion that I don't think there's any way that you can, in my mind, I can't imagine getting tired of it. Mm. I just can't. I can't imagine saying, been there, done that. Um, I don't have anything more to learn. Don't have anything more to do with, with you know, and, and, you know, it's just, I don't understand it when people say, oh, I, I got to go find, I need to make this. I need to make that. I need to make that. I was like, how did you get bored? What's up with you? Right. You know, if I were going to get bored with Pinot, I came to the wrong place <laughs> and I didn't come to the wrong place. Yeah. Um, are you making sparkling? We didn't this year um, because we were scrambling to get the winery open. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure we would have been able to on the date we probably should have picked for sparkling. But uh, we do want to in the future. That would be part of our thing. Now, sparkling, you know, we talked about wine and grapevine in general, having a long cycle or time, right? Well, sparkling is a multi-year cycle. Yeah. So don't don't show up uh, next year looking for our sparkling wine. It won't it won't be there yet. <laughs> yeah, that's a few years, but, right? Sparkling's it's a, a few years project. Well, we started a program when I was at Adelsheim and I was very fond of that program. Um it's kind of hard to leave, <laughs> but uh, so I, I still have a place in my heart to sort of pick that back up. No question. And I do think that there are some really incredible sparklings coming out of the Willamette Valley right now. Yeah, that's Dave Page. That's my jam is sparkling wine. <laughs> I love I love the process of it. I love how you have to have patience with it, especially if you're doing it the traditional method. But mm -hmm. um, just so much devotion to this. And I just, I love, I love all things sparkling. I just love bubbles. And, you know, I had this amazing opportunity in 2014 to go over and taste some of the Van Clare, the wine before they put it down to re-ferment and become sparkling, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, in champagne and see what they tasted like before that happened. And it was pretty incredible uh, and really informative about what those wines taste like at that stage, because that's not something most people get a chance to ever try. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, and they're locked yes, away. Yes, well, come, come back in, you know, three, four years and we might... <laughs> We might have something. Okay. That's a deal. That is a deal, sir. Um, we're going to wrap up a little bit. One quick question before I get to the final three. Uh, what's next for you? Winery's open. Tasting room's open. Um, it's time to start selling wine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that sounds flippant, but no. my partners, I'm sure, would agree. It, You know, this is... It's so... It, it takes a lot of time and a lot of commitment to get this thing off the ground. And, you know, the building of the winery last year, um, 
as you can see from some of the people walking behind me there, you know, we're, we, we have, uh, we do have a, a small staff now. Um, and so just bringing people on to help this thing go on its own. Cause I'd been, this may not be terribly obvious. You know, we say we just built a winery. Well, what were we doing before? We were renting space at another winery. So I didn't have a staff at, of my own either and didn't have equipment of my own either. So it isn't just physically building a building. There's staffing a building, there's equipment, there's everything else. So this last year was pretty much consumed by that. And it's, now it's time to get out the world, get out and tell the world about us yeah. and tell the world what we're doing and and why I think it's important. And I don't think that, how to say this, I, in a lot of industries, people would be trying to tell you why what they do is unique and why you need their thing because it's, un, it's uniquely better than anybody else's thing. I don't think that's really the, true for the wine industry. I want you to know that our wines really represent the area. I want you to know that, that this is a real, when you taste these wines, you can get a real connection to the vineyards of the Willamette Valley. And if you taste wine that was made from our vineyard here, whether it's the Pinot Blanc or the RPG Pinot Noir, you really are learning something about this site. Or if you taste our Shehala Mountains Pinot, you really are learning something about the Shehala Mountains. But I don't need to be the only winery that does, you know what I mean? We're not trying to, if, if I were trying to do something unique, that would be probably stupid. That would lead someone to do, you know, I don't know what unique would mean in my, in my industry, but I suspect it means something that I wouldn't respect. <laughs> I suspect that, you know, wine could be unique for a lot of wrong reasons. And uh, so unique is not what I'm shooting for. I'm shooting for real and something that really represents the area. And I think when people come to this area, I hope they find that in our wines. They might find it in other wines too. You know, there's, there's a lot of great work being done here. Well, I can get behind that for sure. That's what I love about wine so much is that it does connect you to time. It connects you to place. And there's something very, very special about it. It's sometimes you just can't, it's so, it's so overwhelming, right? You can't really describe what it is, that connection that you love so much. But I do love the mm -hmm. fact that when you're tasting certain wines from certain regions, you're essentially tasting that region and the climate and the air and the soil. And again, time and Mother Nature. It's just, it's very beautiful and a little hippy-dippy. I like it. And with, you know, with the better wines, that's very true. You know, there are wines out there for which that isn't true, right? And that's, when people say, I don't, you know, if, when the people say, I don't want to over oak wine, what they're really saying is I want to taste the fruit. I want to taste what was interesting about that site, mm -hmm. you know? And when I say I don't want to over ripen fruit because, you know, once it gets to jamminess, well, all jammy fruit tastes kind of the same, yeah. you know? So it's, it's all about not having heavy hands so that we can say that this wine is about site right. and about vintage and about the interaction that happened at that site that year. I like it. I like it. All right, let's get to the final three. Uh, Dave Page, best advice you've ever been given? Wow, uh, that's a tough one. Um, the best advice I've ever been given would have been the advice to stay at Adelsheim uh, five years ago. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, sorry. 
Um, that was no. Uh, I think I think coming to Oregon, although I'm trying to remember who exactly I might credit with that. You know, certainly there are some friends of mine in particular that help facilitate that, but but that was kind of an evolving. Like someone thing. said, you should go to Oregon. I think there's a collective. I would give, I once said in an interview when someone asked who my mentor was, mm -hmm. that my mentor was the Steamboat Pinot Noir Conference, where you go and you just taste with winemakers, and most of them, but not all, were Oregonians. And we're all comparing notes on how we make Pinot Noir. And we're tasting each other's wines, generally unfinished wines, to really see this is exactly what I'm dealing with here. And... Um, and so when you're when you're in that situation, the learning curve is so steep. And so I think the best advice I was ever given was somehow collectively advice that I got in rooms like that. Okay. And and there was probably not one single blurb out of that that defined it, but it was the, the collective lesson. Right. Okay. Um What's your happy place? Um, lately, it's been sleep, but uh, <laughs> I, you know, anytime I can relax with a good glass of wine, I'm not, uh, I, I, I guess wherever my happy place is, it's near water, um, preferably in my kayak. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know. Nice. Okay. In all things food and drink. What do you crave? Like Honestly, it always sounds good. Um, I probably should be coming up with an example that's a little more highbrow than this. Nope. But when it really comes to cravings, we're talking about nights where you just really want a good burger or a good pizza, you know. And uh, uh, I, I don't, while I love much higher end food than that as well. But I don't go around saying, man, you know what I want tonight? I want a perfectly roast duck and this and that. you know, yeah. those are, it never occurs to me to say that out loud. No, burger is always on my list. It always sounds good. It just does. Just last night. Right. <laughs> I tell you. Um, well, David Page, I'm going to come visit. I'm going to come visit the new tasting room and the winery. And um, I'm, thank you so much for spending the last, oh, hour, 60 minutes, sir. You're well, chatting. Please do. You're please chatting. do come visit. Um, love to have you. Love to have any of your listeners. And, uh, yeah, we'll come and learn about the area. That's what I really want people mm -hmm. to do when they come, is I want them to learn about the area. Absolutely. That's more important to me than, than the fact that they're coming here to taste wine, which they obviously are. All right. Well, I'll see you real soon. Thank you so much again. Thank you. You've been listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma with me, Trish Glose. You can watch this podcast and subscribe on my YouTube channel. Just search Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma. You can also listen and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts.